we continue our series that we uh, did not finish last week because we didn't meet together, but this week we finish our series on the gospel. So we've used four words to describe the gospel, and we've preached through each of these different words. Um, we have used the four words, God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. In Mark chapter 1, we are going to focus in on that last one as we conclude this series together in response. What is to be our response? So that if you only have two minutes to proclaim the gospel to a stranger, or if you've got 15 minutes to dialogue with a friend over coffee who does not know the Lord, does not believe, I want us as Christians to be able to articulate the gospel in a simple yet robust way. Now, this is not the only way to present the gospel. This is not all-inclusive of the gospel, as um, some of us are reading about in Center Church currently. There is so much to the gospel that is available to us to explore, but this is just, a, I think, a helpful way for us to sort of concisely package the gospel for ourselves, for one another, um, and for those that have not yet heard the gospel or believed the gospel. And so that's why we're doing this. And hopefully, um, as we conclude this this morning together, we can, or this afternoon. Um, I don't have morning in my notes, so I don't know why I said that. But anyways, uh, as we conclude this together um, this afternoon, we can uh, be, we can benefit from it um, and be encouraged. So we're going to answer the question today. What should be our response to the gospel? What should be our response to the gospel? Mark chapter 1, if you haven't turned there already, read verses 14 and 15 from Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, starting in verse 14. says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. How many here wish you could go back to the good old days? How, how, how many of you think that there are good old days to go back to? <laughs> okay, all right. Yes, yeah, I mean, there are some of us. I mean, you know, sometimes you think about a certain point in your life when it's like everything seemed to be just going really well at this point. Or you think back in history and you're like, man, I really wish we could have been a part of that period of time. You hear about how things used to be and maybe your grandparents or your parents are like, oh, yeah, back in my day, you know, this was how it was. And you're like, wow, that sounds that sounds good. And then you're also like, yeah, but you didn't have indoor plumbing or something, you know, and you're like, I, I like today. You know, it's a, it's a little bit better. Right. Some of us want to go back just two years. Many of us would say, yeah, I would choose to go back, you know, pre-COVID, have no COVID and say, hey, that would be great. You know, not to live it all again, right? <laughs> yeah, no, not to, not, not to go back so that we could go through it again, but to go back and be like, hey, it didn't actually happen and it's not going to happen, right? I mean, that would be great. Some of us, you know, maybe want to go back 20 years when we were younger, you know, had more opportunities before us. Maybe we were better looking. Um, you know, maybe, maybe we want to go back to when our kids were younger, right? When they were smaller and we could tell them what to do and they would have to listen, you know, or we could just enjoy those moments with them growing up, knowing what, you know, that those times have gone now. 
We can't go back, but we think about those good old days. Maybe we look at culture and we say, man, I wish we'd go back to when, you know, there was prayer in schools or when we actually acted like a Christian nation. Maybe we want to go back before there was social media and smartphones. I think we can probably all agree that a lot of benefits to not having smartphones. You know, as great as it is having a computer in your pocket, it was also nice just being free with the day and not being bombarded with stuff all the time. What Jesus says when he says the time is fulfilled, he's not just talking about history finally progressing to a certain point. He is saying this is the time, this is the opportunity. This is what all of time will have as its center. This time, right here, right now, my life, my death, my resurrection, this is the decisive time that God has chosen to do the most important work that ever has and ever will be done. If you want to go back to the good old days, the best days, stop thinking about pre-COVID. Stop thinking about some supposed Christian America. Look back on when God sent Jesus to fulfill the predetermined, definite plan of God that he had before the foundation of the world. Think back to when the kingdom of God finally came back to us on earth. When the kingdom of God became available to all men, women, and children, no matter the place or time, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor. The time is fulfilled, he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Ever since man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, we have been left outside of the kingdom of God. In the Garden, man had perfect communion with God. We looked at this a few weeks ago. God, our creator, the perfect, holy, majestic God of love, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Not not a God who is reluctant to love. Not a God who is reluctant to forgive. Not a God who despises his creation. But a God, we saw, who will by no means clear the guilty. God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, full of glory, full of truth, full of grace, God. That God, our God, who specially created us in his image to display his glory and enjoy him and serve him. God's purpose for us was to enjoy communion with him in his perfect creation. But to enjoy our lives as God intended was not enough for us. We wanted more. We wanted different. Right? Have you ever been out to eat with a friend, maybe just your spouse? You each ordered your own meal, but when the meals came out, you quickly looked at theirs and said, wow, I made the wrong choice. (laughs) I totally should have gotten that. As soon as that server started putting that plate in front of them, you thought, wow, man, what was I thinking? (laughs) Why did I order that dry meatloaf and I'm looking at their nice juicy steak? What the world was happening? Right, but, you know, maybe it was one of your kids who ordered that the good thing, and you can just cut off half of it and, you know, put it on your plate and problem solved, right? We're simply a people who are not content with what God has given to us. We want a different plate of food. We didn't trust him. We don't trust him. We've sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were specially created in the image of God to display his glory, but we have fallen short of that glory. The glory that God deserves, we instead put it onto food and wealth and beauty and sex, comfort. We force it onto animals and nature and other people. 
And because of that, we have brought upon ourselves the just wrath of God. We were kicked out of the garden, kicked out of God's presence, kicked out of communion with him. Our relationship with God was severed. It was broken. Our relationship with each other, with creation, was severed. It was broken. We became lost and without hope in a cruel and dying world. But in came Christ, God, man, Christ. We looked at a couple weeks ago, one of the simplest explanations of what Christ did for us is found in 1 Corinthians 15.3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is what Jesus means when he begins his public ministry in the gospel of Mark. The first words that come from Jesus as Mark records it, are here in our text. What does he say? Right? I mean, maybe you have a red letter edition, maybe you don't. But if you do, you notice these are the first red letters in Mark. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Where before, this world only had the rebellious, stubborn, self-centered, no good nation of Israel to poorly display God's glory. Now things are different. God himself, the Son of God incarnate, is now here. This isn't just an ordinary Tuesday. Now's the time. Now is the opportunity. This is a once and for all event like you've never witnessed or encountered or experienced or ever will. There are other things that Mark could have recorded as being the first words of Jesus. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't get baptized by John the Baptist and go into the wilderness and then on like day 38 of his 40-day journey in the wilderness decided, you know what? I finally got it. These are the first words that I'm going to say as soon as I come out and start preaching. He didn't rent the Colosseum and invite all his friends and get a secretary to make a bunch of pamphlets and flyers and put an event on Facebook and then drop this line after the band stopped playing and he got up on stage, said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That, that's not why Mark records this as the first thing that Jesus says. Mark records this as the first thing that Jesus says because it is the central purpose, his central purpose, the reason why he came. He is bringing back into reality the presence of the kingdom of God on earth. He is the fulfillment of time. He is the one who brings the kingdom of God back to earth. Where before we were isolated, separated from God. Where before we were lost and broken and without hope in a cruel and COVID-infested world. Now, now Jesus Christ has come. He has come proclaiming the gospel of God. He has come to bring liberty to the captives. He has come to make right what was wrong. He has come to bring hope and wholeness back into this world and to the lives of men and women and children from every tribe and nation and tongue. Look at verse 14. Notice how Mark describes what Jesus says. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He was proclaiming the gospel of God. How much emphasis do you put on the words that you use? Now, clearly with me, sometimes I don't put a whole lot of emphasis when I'm joking around with people or just having a normal conversation. I try to be a little bit more particular 
when I'm preaching. How much emphasis do you put on the words that you use? Sometimes, you know, maybe at work, you've got to be pretty precise. You know, you're cutting someone open and you don't say, you know, hand me the scissors. You know, I don't <laughs> There are three words that we as a church use to describe our ministry. Gospel, community, and mission. Gospel, community, and mission. And here's how we describe those three words. We proclaim the gospel. We build each other up in community. And then we send each other out on mission. I've said this a hundred times. And I say it, and I try to say it the exact same way every time so that we learn it. And learn to speak in that way because this is the way in which we ought to. It starts with proclaiming the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. The gospel is not just something that you share. It's not a pack of M&Ms where you dump a few into your little brother's hands. It's a reality that is proclaimed. A truth that is declared. Look at all the times in scripture when the gospel is preached, when it's taught. People don't just share the gospel. I think maybe one of the only times whenever it's mentioned as being shared is in 1 Thessalonians. But almost every other time, it is a word like proclaimed or the word proclaimed. It's preached. It's taught. It's not shared. It is proclaimed. We are heralds, official spokesmen, authoritatively and winsomely proclaiming the gospel, the good news. Jesus, as Mark records it, proclaimed the gospel. That's what Mark says. In turn, we proclaim the gospel. And here's the reason why we need to see ourselves as proclaiming the gospel instead of sharing the gospel. Proclaiming something means you're declaring a truth that requires action. It it demands a response. A truth that calls for submission. We are making an authoritative claim about God and man and the God-man, Jesus Christ. We are inviting people to receive this good news into their own lives. A truth that is indeed reality and expects a response. So what exactly is the response that Jesus is looking for from this world? How do we enter into the kingdom If the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, if it's within reach, how do we reach out and take a hold of it for ourselves? What is our response supposed to be to this proclamation of the gospel? The answer is repentance and faith. Look at verse 15 again. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Colon, right? Now, look forward to this next part. Here's the answer. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith. Jesus says, look guys, the time is now. The opportunity is being set in front of you. I am inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I am making right what has been wronged. I am turning darkness back into light. I am turning mourning into dancing. I am turning this barren wasteland into a fruitful city. I am carrying the load. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
Here's precisely how to receive me, repentance and faith. Proclaiming the gospel is not just a sharing of the truth. It is an enthusiastic and expectant invitation to respond to the truth. An invitation to become part of the kingdom, to receive this freely offered gift. A presentation of the gospel without an invitation to respond is like telling your kid the ice cream truck is out on the street without giving him a couple bucks to go buy something. It's just cruel. So let's talk about the duality of repentance and faith. God opens our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand the gospel. But can you say that you truly understand if you do not, in fact, respond in both repentance and faith? Repentance without faith is expecting God to forgive you because of what you've done. It's a works-based salvation. It looks only at what you've done or what you're doing. It says, look at me instead of Christ. Faith without repentance is expecting God to forgive you without any real response on your end. Martin Luther put it this way 500 years ago, I think paraphrased. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. James, in the Bible, brother of Jesus, says, Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Show me that you trust Jesus without trusting Jesus. At the heart of both repentance and faith is trust. They're the two sides of the coin of trust. Leaving behind what you previously held on to for spiritual security and fulfillment. And instead, clinging to Jesus. Leaving behind what you once looked to for acceptance, for hope, for healing, and instead turning to Jesus and Jesus alone. I no longer trust the things of this world that I once held on to, seeking peace, wholeness, identity through them. Repentance and faith is a deliberate, conscious turning away from my sin and turning to Jesus Christ. It is an act of my will and not just my mind. We cannot rightly say that we understand the gospel without also submitting ourselves to it. True belief is trust. True repentance is trust. Now many of us are in this life stage or have been in the past. It's like handing over the keys to the car to your 15-year-old student driver and then getting in the passenger seat. Right? I mean, you can refuse to trust him and never give him the keys. Or you can hand him over and jump in for that wild ride you know that it's about to be. We have made it so easy for people to believe that they have faith. Faith for many has become just some bit of information that only concerns the afterlife. It's become some set of facts that we've been told to regurgitate without actually expecting it to impact or change our lives. It's like saying you know how to swim because you read it in a textbook, but you've never actually been in a pool. It's like saying you know how to drive on snow and ice, but your name's Stephen. 
right? Or you've only ever lived in Mexico. It's, I'm not going to trust that person. Proclaiming the facts of the gospel and only calling people to mental assent has made the church weak in so many ways. It has watered down the very call that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed. And I'm not sure that we've done this intentionally. Maybe we have. But in an effort to be pragmatic, we've often lowered the very standard that Jesus himself set. We've gone soft. We look at passages like Ephesians 2.8, where Paul says, It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. So we say salvation only requires faith. We are saved through faith. And then we tend to to define faith by saying it's just understanding the facts of God as the perfect creator and us as sinners and Christ as Savior. But true faith, faith that truly saves, is more than just mental assent. If God has truly made you alive together with Christ, if his grace is truly how you have been saved. If you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, then your response to the proclamation of the gospel of God will both initially and continually involve both repentance and faith. Jesus is Savior, but God is saving us from more than just hell. He's saving us from ourselves. He's saving us from the lies of this world. He's saving us from our sins and his wrath. But if in your desire to follow Jesus, you have not left behind following the world, then are you truly following Jesus? If I decide to follow Jesus, but do not also decide to stop following what I had been, do I possess true faith? Have I actually repented? We could look at the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He goes up to Jesus and he's legitimately concerned and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, You've asked a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Let's explore this for a second. What have you been trusting? You've been trusting your wealth. Leave that behind. Turn away from that. Repent of that. And come, follow me. You've been trusting in your wealth. Stop trusting in that. Go, sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Then come, follow me. Jesus explicitly told that man that he had to leave behind his wealth. He wasn't calling that man to perform a work in order to be saved. He wasn't requiring obedience before salvation. He was requiring repentance. Stop trusting in your wealth. Start trusting me. Turn from your idol and turn to me. Believe me when I say that I am better than all the riches of this world. Believe me when I say that eternal life is worth temporary poverty in this life. Jesus called that young man to respond in repentance and faith. Turn from your wealth, turn to me. Now, repentance and faith does not look exactly the same for everybody, but it does have the same basic elements. 
If you still don't believe what I'm saying or what Jesus said, all you have to do is look at the next couple of verses in Mark's gospel for the immediate response of the first disciples that are responding to the call of Jesus on their lives. Look at verse 16 in Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, what did they do? They left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And what did they do? They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I mean, immediately Mark gives you an example of what it looks like to respond to Jesus' call on your life. He does it immediately. Right after he says this, in verses 16 through 20, he does it in the middle of his letter, of his book, of his gospel. In Mark chapter 10. What you have been trusting in, what you have been depending on for peace and wholeness and security, stop. Stop trusting that stuff. And instead, begin to trust the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. No longer is my acceptance based on my performance. No longer do I have to prove myself. No longer do I have to worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. No longer do I have to control or manipulate the outcome of my life or this day or this business deal. My life is now in Jesus' hands because he has shown himself to be the Son of God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The perfect promised Messiah who gave his life for my own. When we are called to respond to the gospel, we are not just responding to some set of truths to believe, but we are called to respond to the grace of God. Look, I'm not saved. You're not saved because of faith. I'm not saved because of my faith. I am saved because of the grace of God. You're not saved because you believed some truths about God and the world. You are not saved because you sold all that you had and gave it to the poor. You were brought from death to life by the power of the Spirit of God through His gracious love toward you in Christ Jesus. God made us alive. Look again at how Mark introduces the gospel in verse 14 of our text. How does he describe the gospel? It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel of God. The gospel is about God, and it is from God. It is the gospel of God. In all of this, in this whole discussion of the basics of the gospel message, and boiling it down to its fundamental parts, it's easy to get to the end of our four words, God, man, Christ, response. And call for someone to respond as if that were what it's all about. As if it all hinged on whether or not someone responds positively. But the gospel does not depend on us like that. The gospel is from God and it is about God. And if God chooses to do a work in that person's heart through the proclamation of his word, then that's up to him. It is from him. It is about him. 
And it's up to him to give that person a new heart. And whether or not that person responds positively doesn't detract from the reality that God will see himself glorified. Jesus remains Savior and Lord. God remains seated on his throne. Just as Jesus proclaimed the gospel and called people to respond in repentance and faith, so we too have been called to proclaim the gospel and invite people to respond in repentance and faith. When someone asks you how you know you're saved, the answer is not because you walked an aisle. It's not because you came down for an altar call. It's not because you prayed a prayer. The answer is, I know I'm saved because the risen Christ died for my sins in accordance with the scriptures. And his life is my life. His death is my death. His resurrection will be my resurrection. I said this a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you able to say that today? Is the person that you're proclaiming the gospel to able to say that? Have you died to your sin? Repented? Have you begun to follow Jesus? Believed in faith? Repentance and faith. If you've never done that, or you're not currently doing that, then I invite you to respond to this gospel call on your life. And do it right now. Right? As I begin to pray, you can respond. The fact of the matter is that you will respond. The only question is whether you will respond in repentance and faith or not. Let's pray. God, your, your word is powerful. Your spirit is at work. Would you continue to soften our hearts? that repentance and faith would be a hallmark of who we are as a people. And that we would call one another and others outside of our body to respond to the gospel in the way that you have designed God, help us to be a people who are marked by repentance and faith. Only your Spirit can do that in our hearts, and only your Spirit can soften the hearts of those that we witness to, that we proclaim the gospel to. So God, would you give us boldness as we seek opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Would you give us boldness 
and strength. When we hear the gospel proclaimed ourselves, that we would respond in repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.